The funny thing about healing yourself is that it puts you in a really good position to help heal others. This is my conversation with Melissa De Silva. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repman. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Melissa De Silva. Melissa is a successful NFT artist and an entrepreneur, a therapist, a coach who motivates other LGBTQ plus individuals and artists to take their life and career to the next level. And she's the author of The Profitable Practice, Helping Healing Professionals Build and Grow a Successful Business. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here today on a beautiful Monday. It's great. It's great to have you. So why therapy? What was the motivation for that? I always say it's my love of gossip and <laughs> wanting to help other people. <laughs> okay, but gossip But really, first. it, yeah. <laughs> it was, I had a really awesome school social worker when I was in high school and I wanted to grow up to be her. And so I did. And I went to college. I did my internship underneath her. And lo and behold, now she actually works for me as my CEO. So we really oh, come amazing. full circle with, with all this. Yeah. So yeah, she made a huge difference in my life and I really wanted to make a difference in other teenager lives and now adults and people of the LGBTQ plus community. So where did you grow up and what was your life like in your teen years? So I grew up in Rhode Island and that's where I'm really close to Boston. So that's where you get the Boston accent from. And I grew up with a single mom and we were really poor. Like there was one point where she and I were sharing a bedroom together, but she, you know, she worked really hard to make it work for us, but she had her own stuff going on for her. Um, always struggling with her own mental health issues, substance abuse issues. And, you know, growing up in that type of a household, you grow up learning different skills. Some are helpful coping skills and some can be very difficult coping skills. And still, as an adult now, I'm still trying to untrain myself from some of those coping skills. But, you know, I grew up learning and I was an only child, too. So... I always say, like, my mom's crazy all fell on me. I didn't have anybody to share the craziness with. And so really just kind of figuring out how to survive that and then deciding as I grew up, like, that is far from what I wanted to be when I grew up and just working towards that. And so I would say that her and I are very different, but yet I still see threads of her run through me sometimes. And it's interesting, even though you try really hard not to be your parents, it just it's a part of your DNA sometimes, I think. Um, yeah. But it was a, a childhood that taught me a lot of lessons, made me strong, and made me who I am today, who I'm very happy with. That's a very interesting aspect when you, when you talk about the, the struggles that we go through as, as youths and, and it, when we have role models that are kind of anti-role models in many ways, and that's 
difficult because, you know, mm-hmm. you want to have love and support and empathy both ways and all of that stuff. So even if, and everybody's flawed, and yet when you're working against a model to say, well, I don't want that, how does that affect you as you start to counsel other people? In other words, how, how does it influence your, your engagement with, with, with other young people? It's interesting because I knew that I struggled with working with people who have heavy substance abuse issues. And so I knew like that isn't going to be the field that I'm going to be the most effective in. I know that I work really well with people in adolescents who have anxiety, depression, OCD. I really focus in with individuals who are identify as transgender. And so but what I've learned growing up with a, a dysfunctional family, like most of us, I'm able to kind of take the skills that I've learned and, you know, teach them to other people and let them know, like, you don't have to follow the footsteps that you've been put out, you know, to follow. You can create your own future. And also there's a lot of almost like this survival guilt sometimes of like, all right, so you know, my mom's still stuck in her own stuff and me being successful, going off to college, moving to a different country. Sometimes there is that guilt of, you know, leaving what was expected behind. And also I know that sometimes there's resentment on the other side too. And having to work through that, that this is my journey and this is the journey that I've created. And and not everybody's going to be happy with it, but it's me that has to deal with me at the end of the day. And that's that's what matters in, in my journey right now. Do you ever work with parents and children, you know, together? Yeah, sometimes I do. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to let their parents know, like, your kids are going to be okay. Kids are very resilient, sometimes more than you think they're going to be. And to let parents know, like, yeah, sometimes parents are going to make mistakes and, you know, they don't know all the answers. And letting kids know that, too, like, your parents aren't going to make mistakes. They're human as well. It's all about communicating, being able to communicate with each other. Now, you made a kind of a life change, a restart during the pandemic, right? So what was going on pre-pandemic yes. for you and what precipitated, uh, you know, this, this new evolution? So in 2020, when everything was starting to go downhill with the pandemic, I lived in Rhode Island. I was married. I had my mental health agency. We had a house and a wonderful dog we shared together. And something happened where there was just the shift where I felt like my eyes began to open and realize that even though I was living the life that society told me that I'm supposed to want, I wasn't fulfilled. And I remember just laying in bed thinking, like, is this it? Like, there's something missing. And so I realized, like, after being with my husband at the time for 14 years, it wasn't something that I was willing to go with for another 14 years or 20 years. It wasn't my life partner. We were great for that time that we were together. Like, I feel like there was a reason why we were together and it ran its course. And I always say like when marriage was created forever was like 20 years. It wasn't 80 to a hundred years, you know, like we had short lifespans back then. And so 
you know, who I am 20 years from now is not going to be the same person, right? That's and so great, that's a great breakup like, speech, right? <laughs> that's a great speech because then you're like, listen, here's how I want to start this. Back when our parents were married, people didn't live so long. <laughs> right? <laughs> or like but, back in the Middle Ages, like people were dying at 30. <laughs> but I think that, you know, you and I might have long, happy lives if we end this right here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so we decided to consciously uncouple. So we never really wanted to use that term divorce because we had like such bad history with that term, both of us coming from divorced families. And so from there, we just started uncoupling. So I decided at that point that I wanted to move to Puerto Rico, which is where I wanted to be for a long time because I hate cold. New England has summer, maybe three months out of the year. And Puerto Rico was just really meant for me. Like this feels like home. And so I pretty much up and left. I said, I'm going to Puerto Rico for five weeks and I'm taking the dog. And after five weeks, I was like, I think I'm going to sign a six month lease. And then we decided we'd have custody share of the dog. So I get the dog yeah. for six months out of the year. He gets the dog for six months out of the year. We're still okay. We still love each other. We just know that we weren't meant to be together forever. Like we barely had anything in common after, you know, so many years and that's okay. Did he, and did he, he was on board? I would say he wasn't thrilled about it, but you know, with some time and some processing and we decided like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have gotten married to begin with, you know, but why did we? And when we talked about it, it was like, cause we thought it was like the next step we were supposed to take. Yeah. So we were kind of living by other people's rules. Well, I hear that a lot, you know, and this is obviously, as we all know, uh, in the wake or in the midst of COVID, depending on how you look at it, people are reevaluating their, their choices. And a lot of, People are saying, well, you don't have to do what society, quote unquote, tells you to do. And that applies to a lot of things. What what job you have, wh whether to invest your money or how to invest it if you have it. There isn't a prescription that you must follow. And yet we seem to gravitate toward direction and oversight as, as a mm -hmm. species. I think that we are conditioned. We're very conditioned by media that we consume by past generations you know we get this message that you know to get married and to live into your 80s with the same person you know that means success but really are those people always happy you know some people got married and they think they need to do be together out of convenience you know there might be a reason for that marriage but they're forced to be together you know forever because that's what you know, marriage is supposed to be for, you know, I think it's just these messages that we've been given years and years and years. And we just automatically as humans, we like ease, right? We gravitate yeah. towards ease. So if somebody's telling us we need to do something, we're like, okay, that's easy. We'll just follow along. It's like, that's just yeah. human nature. We well, don't like to be uncomfortable. The simple, <laughs> the simple human logic, the backwards logic is, well, if you're going to take on all the responsibilities that come with being married, you might as well be married. But, but exactly. You don't, 
but you but, don't have to take those things on. You know, you don't have to do no. those things. So now let's 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 move quickly. Let's let's move quickly. Let's move let's hurry up. Now uh, let's move over to uh, to the NFT side of things for a minute. So the thing is is I've always been creative and I've always been an artist. But just like most artists are told throughout their life, you're not going to make any money doing art. So that always has to be your hobby. So moving down into Puerto Rico, where there's a lot of people who are into cryptocurrency, I started learning about NFTs, which is like digital art. And because I don't do digital art, I was trying to figure out how I can incorporate my tangible pieces, pieces that I paint and, you know, create out of just multimedia type of stuff and how to create that into an NFT and how I can utilize this new technology into something that's been around forever, just traditional art. And with that, I learned that I can create a piece, take a digital copy of it, put it on the blockchain and sell it. And I have figured out how people can buy the digital piece of it, but then they also get the real piece that they can hang in their house which is what makes sense to me and most artists. So the great thing about NFTs a lot of artists don't know is that if your art is sold to somebody else after the first buyer buys it, you actually get 10% of that sale. So if your art is sold 100 times, you get 10% of each one of those sales, which is really great for artists because usually it's like once you sell it, that's it. That that piece of art's right. gone into the world and you never get anything back from it. So that's why NFTs have been really neat is because we can continue to get the royalties from future sales. So I've been teaching other artists how they can benefit from this and continue to make passive income on art that they've created. Yeah, that is a fascinating aspect. And I've been, I've been following NFTs, you know, somewhat. It's funny because I started following it about six months ago or eight months ago, maybe even more. And all the people who were into it at the time were like, wow, you're 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 still a pretty early adopter because it's like majority of people don't know anything about it. Um, mm -hmm. But what do you see the what are you finding the that industry is is trending toward? You know, a lot of people you see some disruptions and you see some, you know, uh, drops in the market. I think I think there is going to be waves. Right. We've gone through. Um, the digital art where you can like have two sloths get together and you make new baby sloths and, you know, people are like kind of gamifying it and, you know, there's communities built around that and they're kind of dying off. Then we find that there's people getting into these new digital alter, uh, virtual reality worlds. And I think that is going to continue because if we think back maybe like 10, 15 years, we were getting into that back when we were doing the sins, right? We were creating these alternate realities. And so this is definitely something that we as humans want because we keep on coming back to this alternate reality that we want to be a part of. And NFTs are a big part of that now where you can purchase things for your alternate life. You know, and art being one of them. But with tangible art, with real estate, NFTs are really going to start playing a role in that because it's a public digital ledger that everybody can see who created it and who owns it and who has owned it. Or actually, how much is that piece of art worth? 
So it's going to continue to evolve. It's going to do some shifting as we get better in technology. But I believe that especially for the art that I'm creating, other artists are creating and making into NFTs, it's going to have a longevity because it's been proven to some, be something that we've wanted since the beginning of time, art. You know, you can see it in museums. It's going to be around until the end of time. And so the NFTs is just another factor that's coming into that world. And it definitely benefits the artist, which is a great equalizer in many ways and a balance for, mm -hmm. uh, for artists. Because like you, I, w I was always artistic. I, in my case, it, it was performing, uh, comedy, stuff like that, writing. But I heard the same things over, over and over again about, about the arts not being uh, uh, a job, which mm -hmm. just didn't make any sense historically or otherwise, but it gets drilled into our heads one way or another. But if our, if our parents don't do that, then someone else does or there's a teacher who does, or, you know, and there's people who go the other way, but it's, it's silly. It's a silly concept that, that someone who creates art shouldn't make a living at it. That's, that's, yeah. that's one thing. But in terms of the world that we live in, when you were referencing, you know, the metaverse and people having an alternate, you know, a virtual life, in a way you can't help but think, well, part of it is that the, the, the world is so shitty right now that they're like, thinking, um, you know, I need to have a life outside of the real world. Or they're thinking, mm -hmm. you know, climate change, you know, we're going to, the world will become less livable. So there's a little bit of a, of a darker psychology at play that's isolating us in a different way. Like, you know, we're perhaps connecting online or, you know, on Discord or connect, we're connecting, but we're giving up our piece of the real world. I'm pretty sure uh, we're going to muck up the virtual world, too. I mean, we're just really good at that, right? <laughs> yeah. Good point. I mean, I've already heard, like, stories of people feeling like they're being, you know, sexually assaulted in the metaverse, you know, like being inappropriately touched <laughs> in the metaverse by other people who are in the metaverse. It's like, even in the virtual world, we can't, like, behave ourselves. So, you know, I'm sure there's going to be some weird stuff going on over there. Um, but, yeah, I think that, you know, it's a shame that we are almost like disconnecting from the real world to be into this alternate world. I think that other mental health stuff is going to start coming up from that, too. I mean, we're all plugged in all day long with our phones and computers and work and stuff like that. And, you know, I think that we're going to find that even though people say we're connected, we have community there's still this feeling of disconnection, right? We still need other human energy, human touch. And I think we're going to start seeing, like, you know, people are really struggling with, with feelings of isolation, even though we're connected online so much. You mentioned that the, the, you know, people being molested and accosted in a virtual world, which has a, a really just it's just very unsettling at the same time it makes perfect sense that people who are in in real life offenders are offenders virtually you know mm -hmm. i can imagine that that there might be a uh, someone who's not permitted within 500 yards of their own computer <laughs> just yes. because they're because they they might they might they might offend they might touch somebody inappropriately but psychologically it's still traumatic 
So yeah. I watched a documentary, this, uh, the George Carlin documentary that Judd Apatow did, and I'm watching some of that and looking at historically what was going on in the 60s. And, you know, we're, uh, tragedy, trauma, madness, and war and power hunger is not new to the, to nope. the human experience. But what does change are the things that we're, that we're perceptive about. So, for example, with LGBTQ+, with these communities, what's the tone right now? Because it's so hard to gauge in the United States politically where people really are at. Because it seems so hard to, you can see bad things happen, and you can see good things happen, and then you see a rollback on the good stuff, or, or a, a pushback on the bad stuff. So is there an overall mood or, or feeling that you get from, from the community and the people you're, you're working with? I think the overall feeling is that we're never going to be 100% safe, not 100% equal, whether it's marriage equality or having books that represent our you know, identities in schools and libraries. I mean... It's just like once we think that, you know, we're making progress, then things can easily be turned bad. And so I think there's this feeling of nothing's ever going to be 100 percent equal and safe for the community yeah. because we continue to see this ebb and flow. Yeah. And do you have a do you, do you have an upcoming show that is uh, that is in the works? Yes. So I have my students. Well, it's called Chit Chat with the Queer and Creative. And so it's a podcast where I'm doing season two, where I'm interviewing other individuals who are cre creative or queer or allies who are doing pretty amazing things. And a lot of them actually are in the NFT world. You know, it seems like there's a lot of individuals who identify as LGBTQ plus who are artistic. And it's almost like it's a way of creating our own reality of, you know, something that we can create and control. And so I have a lot of guests who are doing some really amazing creative things from creating gender-free clothing line to writing books about being, uh, you know, a sex slave. So it's a, it's a really interesting show where I have interesting guests come on and talk about the creative things they're doing. Actually sent me yes. some, what is it, uh, front, flat front jock straps. Um, okay. so it was like, interesting, super cute. Love them. <laughs> so yeah. it's pretty much just a piece of cloth in the front. <laughs> That's it. Flat front jock strap. That sounds like it could be a good thing or it could be an insult. Like you guys could see somebody saying you flat front jock strap. What the hell are you doing? You know, like, or somebody saying, I have a, I have a flat front, I have a flat front jock strap. And the other person saying, well, that can be fixed. That can be corrected. Yes. You know? Yeah, I was born with a, I was born with a flat front. I was born with a flat front jock <laughs> strap. And so there's so, there's so much we could do with that. There, there you go. There's always, there's always material. So tell me a little bit about, um, about your background in therapy. So with the background in mental health, so I was, uh, what do they say? I'm not only the owner, but I'm the client. So I had a lot of experience with having mental health growing up, 
dealing with you know eating disorders, depression, anxiety, also dealing with a learning disability, feeling, feeling, figuring out how to navigate that, and then realizing that you know I have a knack for it. That I am a helper. I'm a healer at heart, and deciding like that is the journey that I want to take. And so I decided to go to college to be a social worker. And then I love doing social work because you really get this sense of you can do individual work, but you also have classes and they teach you about the macro stuff. So working with systems and communities of how to make change happen. And so I always think like social work field is a very well-rounded field where you work with individuals and communities and you can see things outside just that person, but you can see how systems are impacting um, the person that you're, you're working with. And so I feel like it's been a privilege being a social worker because of that and being able to have that, that view. But I also found that I enjoy being a business person, just the daily problem solving, creating something out of nothing, trying to figure out how to make money, teach other people how to make money. That has also been a passion of mine too. So I've created different businesses and, you know, just trying to teach other people how they can live the lifestyle they want to live by creating businesses, you know, out of stuff that they love doing. Is that, that's what led to the, to the book, to the, uh, yes. to writing the book? The profitable practice. Yeah. And the other thing is, is like when you're in school to be a therapist, they teach you nothing about business. And so I say in the book, like I'm teaching you everything they should have taught you in school, but they didn't. Because just like being an artist, people say you don't go to school to be a therapist to make money. And the fact that you might even want to make money is looked down upon and you're kind of shunned. So it's like, you supposed to live this life of, I just give, give, give. Maybe I can make my own bills, but I shouldn't want to make any extra money. I'm just, you know, living this life to be able to help other people and that's it. But, you know, you're not going to get a good therapist or a counselor if they're worried about how they're going to feed their family, you know, every week. So, you know, I really wanted to teach therapists and other healers how it's important to think of things in the business sense as well as working with individuals one-on-one, -on -one, um, working with their you know, issues. So I really enjoy working with other therapists and healers and teaching them how to, to create a business that supports their lifestyle. That's great because one of the, one of the things that's changing now is the whole, the whole positioning of purpose within the, uh, the business world. And, you know, it started where you, uh, companies would have charitable affiliations, they would be involved in something, maybe it was good PR, in some cases they really wanted it. But that's evolved to the point of businesses being created strictly from a purpose-driven point of view, and also people being comfortable with the idea of for-profit companies that also have ingrained in their ethos a desire to, to, to improve the world and, and have an impact. So, you know, hopefully the same holds true for people who are providers, you know, responders, you know, provide necessary services. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that they should be completely selfless or have 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 mm -hmm. dedicated themselves to a life of poverty. It's not it, I agree with you. It should not should not be the case. And yeah, even before the uh, when the pandemic hit, my company was like the company that was um, you know, doing drag bingo and supporting the LGBTQ plus community. We were a part of 
the local LGBTQ plus magazine. So even though we were a for-profit company and mental health agency, we were still able to give back to the community. Like you said, like you can give back, but also live a life like so that you can live a life and that poverty isn't something that you have to worry about every day as well. And if you could leave our audience with something, uh, some kind of concrete action step that that anyone in today's world, given given all the different craziness that that goes on and the, and the instability, what would what would come to mind as as a good practice for anyone? I think it is you know change is uncomfortable. We humans like to be comfortable, but if you want something to change in your life, you're going to be willing to make yourself a little uncomfortable to make that change happen. And so if you're thinking about that career change or you're thinking about that life change, be prepared. It's going to be uncomfortable, but it's going to be okay. You're not going to allow yourself to fail because that's just a part of human nature too. We're survivors. And to find that support, that network that's going to help you and be supportive of that change that you want to make. Because you can always find somebody that's going to say, no, it's not going to work. You need to find that person that's going to be like, yes, you can do this. I love that. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.